0: What's that place you've always wanted to try? Well, you're there sharing plates with just one bite. Or on second thought, maybe not sharing. It's that good. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it.
1: Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower. Every note. Or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew. Drew. You can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at AmFam.com. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000, American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the Exxon Broadcast Network and iHeartRadio. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com, on all social media sites, TV, And uh, to find out about the programming we have available for you, 724-365, on the Exxon Broadcast Network, visit www.xzbn.net. My guest this hour is a gentleman I have had the pleasure of having on the show for many years. Seth Shostak is his name. He's an American astronomer, currently senior astronomer for the SETI Institute and former director of Center for SETI Research when it was a separate department. Joining me now is Seth Shostak. And, Seth, welcome back to the x It's been a
2: long time. It has, Rob, but it's great to speak with you again.
1: Nice. Great. Nice talking to you. Uh, congratulations on all the wonderful things that, uh, that you've done over the years, Seth. And I'd like to congratulate you on um, uh, the book, uh, Confessions of an Alien Hunter, and your radio show, Big Picture Science.
2: Well, i got to say, the book is a little old. The radio show is something we do every week, of course. So that's, that's always new. <laughs> the, book, the book I've read, the radio show, I don't know, next week, I, I, haven't, I haven't heard it yet. You haven't heard it yet. Uh, What's new in in the world
1: of SETI? Uh, Are we any closer to finding that extraterrestrial intelligence that you and the fine people at SETI have been looking for for so many years?
2: Well, it's hard to say whether you're any closer, unfortunately, because, you know, until you find a signal, all you can say is you haven't found a signal. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, but what you can say is that, well, look, if uh, they're out there, if somebody's out there, if somebody out there is on the air... Well, uh, you could say, all right, uh, how long is it going to take you to find those guys? And the answer to that depends on how many are out there broadcasting. Secondly, how many, you know, star systems you're looking at with your antennas, how quickly, if if you will, you're looking for these guys. And third, you know, do you have enough uh, uh, sensitivity and stuff like that? Well, we don't know how many are out there, but we do know how quickly we're doing the experiment. And if you look at that, I find it an encouraging scene uh, in the sense that I I bet everybody a cup of Starbucks or Hortons or whatever (laughs) that we will find E.T. within the next two decades. We'll see if that's true. But on the other hand, you know, it could happen uh, at at, at any moment.
1: What kind of advancements have you at SETI used over the years?
2: A lot of it has to do with the technology, right? Uh, Unfortunately, you know, we can sort of guess where ET might be hanging out, uh, you know, just look at nearby stars, because mm-hmm. something that we didn't know 10 years ago, but that we do know now, is that most stars have planets, right? And when I was a kid, you know, we didn't know if any stars had planets other than the sun. Well, then we found that there were planets around other stars, and now we know that, you know, 70, 80%, maybe 100% of all stars have planets. So planets are very common. If You, you know, pick out a star in the sky, and you can be fairly confident it has planets. We still don't know what fraction of those planets are the kind where, you know, life might kick up. But uh, the estimates, based on very preliminary data, are maybe one in five. So, you know, they're, they're kind of worlds where you might have that dirty chemistry we call life. Mm-hmm. It, those worlds are all over the place. What we still don't know, though, is A, how many of them actually do have life, B, how many of them ever cooked up intelligent life, and uh, C, how many of them are on the air now, if you will.
1: How do we know that the bandwidth and the band frequencies that SETI is looking for are actually the the frequencies that ETs would be using?
2: Well, you don't. You don't. You have to second guess this. Lamentably, ET never did send us that email in which they said, "Hey, we'll be at 1427 megahertz on the dial mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be uh, sending you, uh, you know, classical music so you can express, uh, expect this bandwidth." We don't we don't know, but there are some physical laws that kind of give you an idea, right, at very low frequencies, like AM radio here on Earth, you know, those those signals bounce off the ionosphere of our planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know this if you can, you know, you can pick up a, a station like Chicago, even on the east coast of, yeah. uh, you know, North America, because at least at night when these, uh, when these signals bounce off the ionosphere. And so, you know, low frequencies are probably not great for interstellar communication because they'll have the same problem at their end. Their transmitters will bounce off the ionosphere. And of course, you know, we have the problem on the receiving end, too. At very high frequencies, you get a certain amount of what's called quantum noise. That's just inherent in the physics of the universe. So there's kind of a range in between. It's at what are called microwave frequencies, that we think, you know, these make sense. If you want to send bits of information from one star system to another, mm-hmm. then these are the frequencies that you ought to consider. All right, so, Seth, stand
1: by, my friend. We've got to take a commercial break. Exonation, Nation, Seth Shostak is our special guest. www.seti.org and www.sethshostak.com. This is the exon I am Rob McConnell. Don't go away. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere,
0: 24-7-365.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Don't forget, starting November the 17th, I'm sorry, November the 15th at 7 a.m. Eastern, We're launching our brand new channel, XZBN Channel 365. It's a news talk, music, information channel, 724-365. That's www.xzbnchannel365.com. Seth Shostak is our special guest. Once again, the websites are www.setty.org and sethshostak.com. Uh, maybe for those who are listening to us uh, who may have never heard of SETI before because they live in a, in a mountain somewhere where they don't get reception, just by fluke luck, they're at a local coffee house uh, listening on somebody's computer. Tell us a bit of the history of SETI.
2: Well, the idea that you might find aliens elsewhere, that's pretty old. goes back at least a couple of hundred years, probably a couple of thousand years. And there were proposals even 150 years ago to, uh, you know, maybe... Uh, check out Mars for inhabitation. And in fact, that was done at the beginning of the 20th century. People in the 1920s were using their home radios to try and hear messages from Mars. And they actually did think that they had heard some messages in 19, I think it was 24. It turned out that they were coming from Canada, actually, Vancouver. Uh, So those weren't aliens. But- I don't know uh, about that. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know how they feel about that in BC. But, uh, you know, the modern SETI idea that Mm -hmm. you use- the kind of equipment that really could be expected to pick up a signal if there are any. That only goes back to 1960 when Frank Drake used a couple of, uh, well, he used an antenna in West Virginia, looked at a couple of star systems. And uh, by the 1970s, it became a NASA project to actually build some real equipment to do it for real. And uh, that was unfortunately canceled in 1993 by the U.S. Congress. Since then, it's all been run with uh, private donations, actually. So the Entire number of people in the world that are doing SETI these days is maybe a dozen, and uh, it's largely funded by, as I say, donations. So it's a limited effort, but it's Mm -hmm. very much more sophisticated from a technical standpoint than it used to be.
1: Is SETI at at home still a viable
2: project? It is, and it's still running. That's not our project here at the SETI Institute, but that is a project of the University of California Berkeley Mm -hmm. SETI group, and they've been running that. I, I don't know what it is, Rob, but on the order of a decade or so has to be and it's yeah yeah and they still process some of their data using that it's in some sense the world's biggest computer
1: um i I know that you've done work at the arecibo in um in puerto rico how did that fear out after the last hurricane Uh, was there a lot of damage to the dish
2: well uh what i've read i haven't been there we don't use that antenna anymore and haven't for well like something like 12 or 13 years but uh i'm told that there was damage but not a whole lot of damage. So it's, you know, it's nothing catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, if you're going to go to Puerto Rico in hurricane season, probably the best place <laughs> on the yeah. island to be is the Arecibo telescope because up there, you know, they've got their own generators. They've got their own food supply. They've got their own water supply. You know, you probably, it's like a monastery. You could probably live up there for, for months, you know, without uh, too much danger as long as you don't get blown away by the storm.
1: Yeah. How, how true to life was contact with jody foster when they received that that signal
2: Uh, you mean that signal that sounded like a pile driver hitting a pot of whales yeah that's Um... the one yeah (laughs) well i mean you know there are a lot of technical errors the funny thing about that that statement namely that there were a lot of technical errors is that i and many of my colleagues here were in fact advisors for the film and they still had all these technical errors we we could have corrected them but you know they they, you never get everything right. But that doesn't matter. This this was based on a novel by Carl Sagan that he wrote in 1983. And of course, Sagan knew what he was talking about when it came to this kind of work. So it's it's very accurate in, in the sense that compared to any other sci-fi film, it's a lot better.
1: What would happen if SETI did detect a signal, a radio signal?
2: Well, I think that if you were to go out on the streets of uh, just about any city here in North America mm-hmm. and ask people what they think would happen, uh, you know, seven out of 10 of them or something like that would say, well, the government would simply keep it quiet. They would they would shut it all down or maybe not shut it down, but certainly not tell the public. And the reason for that being that, oh, well, people would just go nuts. Uh, I've never seen any indication that that's the slight, you know, that there's any any chance whatsoever that the public would all go nuts. But what actually happens, and we know this because we've occasionally had signals which look like the real thing, uh, is that the media immediately start calling you up. They they learn about it right away because you know as soon as you find a signal mm-hmm. that looks interesting, you start blogging it or <laughs> sending emails to friends, test, uh, texting all your relatives. So the news spreads extraordinarily rapidly and without, within hours, the newspapers, the local radio and TV stations are calling you up. So that's what would happen. It would just be a big news story in the beginning.
1: What was the signal that that you were part of um, finding or, or investigating that came to the closest, in your opinion, Seth, to being the real McCoy, the signal that you and everyone at SETI has been searching for?
2: Yeah, well, there was a case in the late summer of 1997 when I was at home having dinner. Uh, the phone rings. It's the boss here at the SETI Institute, our CEO. Tom and he says, Seth, I think you ought to get down here to the office. You know, when the boss calls you at home, that's usually not good news. Hmm. Uh, But in this case, he wasn't giving me the pink slip. He was just giving me an incentive to come down to the Institute, which I did. And everybody was sitting around the computers because there was indeed a signal we thought might be it. And uh, I remember being very nervous. uh, You know, gosh darn, I have dinners planned this week. You know, lunch is not going to be able to do any of that if this is really ET. And it took us about 24 hours before we figured out what it was. It was a, uh, uh, it's the the Soho satellite, actually S O H O. So uh, that that's a European research satellite, mostly mm-hmm. European, designed to study the sun. And of course, it sends its data back on a radio beam. Not surprisingly, and uh, that's the signal we were picking up. But it. Because of an equipment failure that we had, it took a long time to figure out that that's what was going on. So it looked like uh, the real thing, and I kept waiting for the White House to weigh in or or maybe my mom to call or something. <laughs> but uh, in fact, nobody called until, wow. uh, you know, I don't know, like 10 hours into it when the New York Times finally called.
1: What do you think uh, President Trump would do if, if he was to catch wind of that, you know— The signal was actually verified to be that of E.T. that that SETI has found. What kind of tweet do you think he'd put out?
2: Yeah, well, maybe they're going to help us make uh, Earth great again. I I, I don't know. Uh, I actually have to say that it seems that uh, President Trump is interested Mm -hmm. in space. I don't know to what degree that's the case, but he seems to like NASA. Uh, At least that's what I'm told. This is all very third-hand information. You know, the thing is that the uh, the politicians will probably read about this, uh, you know, in the newspapers or see it on CNN. I guess that's a little more likely, I mean, the lack of newspapers. But, you know, they're, they're not going to hear it directly from their own people because their own people won't know. This is not a government project. So how do they know about it? They know about it the same way everybody else knows about it. We don't have any direct lines to uh, any government agencies. So... <laughs>
1: With the type of work that you and the other people at SETI are doing, Seth, how come you're not government
2: funded? Well, that's a that's a good question for which I don't have a really excellent answer. Unfortunately, it was canceled. It was a NASA program, and it was costing a few million dollars a year. Now, uh, NASA's budget is on the order of you know fifteen billion dollars a year, so it was always like one part in a thousand Mm -hmm. of the NASA budget. They were very relatively small. But it was very vulnerable in the sense that any com- uh, congressman who was looking for some issue to present to his you know, constituents could always point to SETI and say, you know, your tax dollars are going to look for little green guys, that kind of thing. And there was a congressman, a Democrat from uh, Nevada who did that, and that, that ended it. Now, it wasn't that NASA was against funding SETI. They, they thought it was a good thing. But Congress decides what research NASA does. That's, you can you can argue about whether that's a good idea, but that's that's what happens. So it's hard to get it back in the NASA budget. I mean, there's no law against it, but it's hard to get it back in unless you have some people in Congress who say, you know, NASA ought to be doing this. It falls within the purview of the government to support this a little bit because it's extremely inexpensive, and it would be uh, you know absolutely remarkable if you found something because you know that would change history and mm-hmm. change it forever. But, you know, this requires a certain degree of uh, ability to see the bigger picture.
1: Do you think, uh, personally, Seth, that there is a conspiracy by the governments of the world to suppress any information that points to the UFO
2: phenomenon? No, I don't think so. Uh, We've discussed this because uh, I know that uh, a lot of people do believe that. They think Mm -hmm. that the government is covering up on this. Now, the thing is that if that's the case, then then not just you know, the U.S. government and maybe the Canadian government are covering up, but all the governments have to be covering right. up unless, you know, unless the aliens seem to prefer North America for some reason. But I but I, I, honestly don't think that that's the case because I don't think you could hide it. If we were truly being visited by saucers that people can see with their eyeballs, you know, in, in the dead of night, um, then I, I think that that evidence would be so widespread. You know, it, it would be very hard to somehow bury it. Yeah. I mean, everybody carries a camera around with them these days. Exactly. And, yet, and still, the evidence that we're being visited hasn't gotten any better. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that if we were being visited, you would know about it. I mean, it was like asking the Algonquin Indians, you know, in 1500, hey, do you think you're being visited by Europeans? Uh, you know, they, they, they wouldn't have much trouble in proving to
1: you that they were. Exactly. You know, Seth, I've been doing this show for 26 years, and when it comes to ufology— or any aspect of the paranormal, nothing has changed in 26 years. So why do you think that this UFO phenomenon is still of such great interest to so many people?
2: Well, I think it it appeals to us for various reasons. I mean, to begin with, people are interested in the idea of aliens. I can can understand that, and obviously I'm one of them. So, uh, I don't have any problem with that. Everybody should be interested in aliens in some sense because you're kind of hardwired to be interested in other beings that might be, you know, I don't know, have some influence on your life, you know, maybe help you with breeding experiments or who knows yeah. what. But, you know, so the interest is perfectly legit. But the idea that we're being visited, okay, you see something you don't understand and mm-hmm. you say, well, what was that, Bob? I don't know. What do you think it was? Could have been an airplane. No, oh, it was moving too fast. Whatever. Uh, you know, it's kind of appealing to say that you now know something that those pointy headed guys down at the local university refuse to acknowledge. That's kind of empowering. And so I think that there's that part of it is that. But, you know, you're not talking about a, a fringe belief. I mean, one third of the populace believes that this is true. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I the, the idea that it would be kept secret just really doesn't make sense because uh, you know, you would have tens of thousands of scientists beavering away on this sure. problem if they thought that uh, if, they, if they thought there was good evidence for it.
1: I remember speaking to an astronomer years ago, and I said, "Well, what you know, like, is it possible that the astronomical societies and uh, science would suppress the information?" He said, "Well, they might, but what about the amateur uh, astronomers? They'd want to get it out there as fast as they could."
2: No, no, absolutely, yeah. and in, in fact, I mean, if, if somebody had good evidence and presented it to me, you know, I usually get to, oh, well, Seth, you couldn't accept that because it would, uh, you know, your boss wouldn't like it, it would destroy your job or something like that, no, that's yeah. not true, I mean, if, if we thought that they were a foot in the land you know, nothing would improve our funding situation exactly. to begin with. <laughs> exactly. And we would know exactly what to do for, in terms of the next experiment.
1: Let's go check this out. In fact, years ago, I had Arden Albee on the show. And uh, I said to, I asked her, I said, what would NASA do if they had unequivocal proof about extraterrestrial life? He said, man, we'd run and we'd yell it from the highest mountaintop because it would guarantee us funding. Seth, stand by. You and I have to uh, take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Exxon Nation. Dr. Seth Shostak is my guest. www.seti.org and www.sethshostak.com This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell and you're listening to us on the Exxon Broadcast Network and iHeartRadio.
0: xzbm dot net,
1: www dot seti dot org, and www dot sethshostek dot com. Uh, Our two websites where you can find out about our guest this hour, Dr. Seth Shostak. Seth, always a great pleasure having you on the show. And um, whatever happened to that wow signal that we heard about?
2: Yeah, well, the the wow signal made a a big wow when it showed up back in 1977 for uh, about one minute. And then it went away. (laughs) <laughs> and in fact, uh, the telescope, which was used to find it, which is, was uh, a telescope run by Ohio State University there in Columbus, Ohio, uh, uh, automatically reobserved the same direction, same frequency, same everything about a minute later and didn't find the signal. And it's never been seen since. We've tried looking and we, we continue to point our own telescopes, the Allen Telescope Array. We point it you know, routinely in the direction of the wild wow signal. And we haven't found it either. And there have been other observations. So it's one of those deals where you saw it once. Mm-hmm. It was pretty convincing. You know, it looked like the kind of thing you'd expect from an alien signal. had all the right properties, but it never came back. So what do you do with that? You know, you just say, well, don't know what it was. That's, that's about the best you can do. And by the way, there have been lots of other signals that look pretty good once. But- You know, if you can't find him a second time, unfortunately, it would not be responsible to say, well, we found E.T., but he went on vacation.
1: You know, you and I were talking about UFOs before we went to the news break. And something that has always amazed me is that the UFO sightings that are seen at night, the people actually see the craft when it's not illuminated. I've always
2: wondered how that happens. Well, that's true. Uh, most of the sightings seem to be at night, Yeah. and, uh, you know, I, people call me every day. They've, they've seen something. Mm-hmm. I often ask them if they have any photos or videos because uh, photography happens to be a hobby of mine. So if they are willing to send me photos, I'm willing to check them out and, you know, offer an opinion often. Right. Uh, but, you know, when you see things at night, it's very hard to tell, indeed, what they look like, how big they are. People mm-hmm. are always saying, well, it was going 8,000 miles an hour and made a left turn. You know, no no terrestrial aircraft could ever do that, which is true, but how do you know it was going 8,000 miles an hour if you don't know how far away it is, right? Uh, that's just elementary geometry, and they don't know how far away it is because they don't know how big it is intrinsically. So, you know, these are all uh, suppositions that are the result of what your brain does when it sees something like this and automatically Applies knowledge it knows about other things like, you know, the motions of cars at night with headlights or airplanes in the sky to fly over. So it's, uh, it's unfortunate because that evidence is so poor. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. As, as a photographer,
1: uh, how do we explain that since everyone does have a cell phone uh, or a device that has high definition capabilities, that there are less photos of UFOs now than before everyone having the ability to have a camera.
2: Well, I didn't know that there were fewer than there used yeah. to be. That That's news to me. Uh, but I don't know. I don't, obviously don't have any explanation of it. Now, one thing you can say is mm-hmm. that if they're mostly at night and they're mostly far away, well, then maybe the photos aren't going to be very good. But, you know, I, I don't understand why the uh, the aliens are under flight rules to only fly at night. And and by the way, if they're going to fly at night, it's it's always surprise me that they bother with any lights. Why do do they need those lights? Exactly. Do they feel subject to FAA regulations? I'm not quite sure of that. Exactly. That's that's an excellent question.
1: What about uh, Tabby Star?
2: Yeah, Tabby Star has been in the news for at least a year and a half now, I think. And uh, it's named after Tabitha Bajoyan. And I'm sure I've mangled her name yet again. But uh, she was a postdoc working at Yale University. She's now working in the Deep South, actually. Uh, and she happened to take some data that had been collected by NASA's uh, Kepler Space Telescope on a star, which is now called Tabby Star, though it has another name, KIC 8462852 or something like that. And what she noticed was that this star, you know, got a little bit dimmer occasionally. In fact, not a little bit dimmer, but a lot bit dimmer uh, by 22 percent. No star does that. I mean, you can look at the sun every day and... You know, as our president has done, you can look at the sun occasionally (laughs) and it'll, you know, it'll change in in brightness by maybe one part in a thousand at most, at most, you know, big sunspot groups or something will will darken the whole disc a little bit. But, you know, never 22 percent. That's just unheard of. And it's not a planet going in front of it. Right. Because they don't dim it that much either. So what was it? Well, a fellow at Penn State, Jason Wright, suggested, well, this is kind of a crazy idea. But of course, it could be. That there's some aliens in that vicinity, and they build a giant alien megastructure. Uh, You can get the instructions on the web, I I suppose, to build an alien megastructure. Anyhow, you know, a big thing, a whole bunch of solar panels, uh, something in space that occasionally gets between their home star and us, and maybe that's what it is it doesn't seem to be we have looked with our antennas many times we have never picked up any signals from the direction of uh, tabby stars some of the some of the other SETI practitioners have done the same they don't find any signals and the the uh, you know the bottom line here is that there've been some observations using telescopes big telescopes on earth mm-hmm. and in space of tabby star and they suggest that what's really going on there is that there's a lot of dust dust clouds in that system and they're occasionally blocking the light. But, you know, it's still interesting because we're not absolutely sure what's going on. Where is the SETI uh, Telescope Array? Well, the Allen Telescope Array, which is what we use, is 42 antennas, each of them about uh, 6 meters, uh, 20 feet in diameter, and they're located up in the Cascade Mountains of California, and those are, uh, you know, it's about three. You draw a line straight north from San Francisco for 350 miles, and you more or less hit the antennas. It's in the mountains. It's not in the mountains because, you know, the beauty of the mountains, although they are attractive. Uh, but, you know, that way the, the mountains can block all the interference from the San Francisco Bay Area.
1: What is the difference between a, a radio telescope and an optical telescope? Do they both function the same? I understand that one is with optics and the other is with radio waves. But what are the, what are the different uses of these two telescopes?
2: Yeah, right. Well, they do both uh, function the same way, except for the fact that, as you say, one is working in the optical regime mm-hmm. and the other in the radio. Well, it turns out that the universe produces, of obviously, a lot of light. You, know, yes. you just go out at night and you can see it, mm-hmm. unless you live downtown where you can't. But it also produces a lot of radio noise. Now, you know, 50 years ago, people didn't really know. Well, 50 years ago, they knew it. But, you know, in the, in the 1930s, they didn't really know that. There were also radio waves coming from space. You know, who ordered that? Nobody expected it. And it turns out, you know, the sun is a big ball of hot gas, so it produces some radio. Jupiter produces some radio waves, right, because it's got big magnetic fields and stuff. But it turns out that there are lots of other things much farther away that produce very strong radio emission, things like quasars and pulsars and, and big black holes in the centers of galaxies and so forth. And a lot of that is stuff you really don't notice if you're just using an optical telescope where you're just, you know, using the the wavelengths of light that you can see with your eyes. So it turns out it's just another way to look at the universe and you see all sorts of nifty things. It's somewhat like, you know, gravitational waves. You can see things if you have a gravitational wave telescope that you can't see with any other kind of telescope. So it it complements the kind of info we get about the cosmos.
1: Uh, I also see something here about the TRAPPIST-1 system.
2: Yeah, TRAPPIST-1. This was uh, discovered by a team of astronomers uh, led out of one of the universities in uh, Belgium. And uh, so they invented a very convoluted acronym that turned out to be TRAPPIST because they have a monastery in Belgium, the <laughs> TRAPPIST monks, and they make a famous beer. So, you know, what the hey. Yeah, hey. Uh, I'll, I'll drink to that. So, <laughs> yeah, now this is kind of an interesting system because it's, it's it's a you know a system of planets around a what's called a red dwarf star so this is a star that's really a runty guy kind of a bantam star a lot smaller than the sun and a lot dimmer than the sun but these planets are very close in they orbit very close to it so they're probably warm enough for life at least three or four of them are and they found seven and they're all more or less the same size as earth right so that's really unusual so you got you know seven of these planets going around this runty little star at least three of them are warm enough to have, you know, liquid oceans and atmospheres. I mean, we don't know if they do, but they right. could. So you might have cooked up some life there. And not only that, but if there's any intelligent life, they probably colonized all seven of those planets. So the facts are that, you know, that's not just another planet with maybe some aliens on it. It could be a whole federation of planets with some aliens on it.
1: Why is, why is NASA so focused on manned spaceflight to Mars?
2: I think it's because the public is to some extent. Uh, you know, it's, it, it would be as if in 1492, you know, Columbus said, all right, you guys don't want to fund me to go, you know, sail west across the Atlantic, but how about if I build this robotic ship? And, you know, they, they might fund that. But but there's something about sending people that's a little different. I mean, you you can go into a classroom mm. and say, how many of you kids want to go to Mars? And they'll all raise their hand. And then you say, how many of you want to build a robot that goes to Mars? And some of them will raise their hand. So there's, there's a component of it that is simply our need for exploration. But there's also science in it. I mean, if you send a biologist to Mars, they'll find uh, stuff a heck of a lot faster than a robot explorer will, if there's anything to find.
1: Do you think that in the future, mankind will colonize Mars?
2: Yeah, I don't think there's much doubt about that. I mean, the the, the future being essentially (laughs) unbounded. I mean, sooner or later it'll happen. It's like saying, you know, are we going to cure the common cold? We've never done it. Yeah, it's exactly. hard. We don't know how to do it yet. But eventually we'll. So I, I I, think that we will colonize Mars. We'll presumably go to Mars sometime in the next couple of decades. And, uh, you know, sending colonists. I mean, it's, it's a lot better than the moon if you're going to live somewhere, you know, on a different world. I think it's better than the moon. But, you know, probably the best places to colonize are. The orbital space around your own planet. Build giant rotating aluminum cans in space, and uh, you know then you can just fill them with air, and keep out the mosquitoes, and grow some food and enjoy the views.
1: Yeah, uh, I see. I've got a I've got a conspiracy theory when it comes to the uh, the 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 common cold. Big Pharma wants to suppress it, the research into it because they've actually discovered the uh, the cure many years ago. Bud. Yeah, you know, <laughs> keeps us in <a> NyQuil. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I, I kind of like that. It's like, you yeah. know, the, the uh, oil industries have suppressed that super duper carburetor yeah. that allows you to get 300 miles per gallon.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it has. Do you, as an astronomer and a person who's very savvy with what goes on in, in our solar system, as far as you know, is there any proof that at any time in the past, the moon actually was uh, inhabited by a civilization?
2: I don't think so. I mean, you can look at the moon. We've been, yeah. we've looked at you can look at the moon every night, of course. And uh, you know, I, I have to say that idea was, had a lot of currency in about 1615, so uh, you know, about uh, 400 years ago, when people first turned telescopes to the sky and they saw these craters and Maria and all these things. Mm-hmm. And you know, people like Kepler and uh, even, to some extent even Galileo, they thought, well, maybe those are cities on the moon. But you know, as soon as Astronomy got to the point where they could easily determine that there's no atmosphere on the moon There's no liquid water on the moon, right? So it's not a great place for life today. Could it ever have been better? Uh, Well, it was probably a little different, but it was never much better and I think that if ever there had been uh, intelligent life living on the moon you would see that evidence because the moon doesn't have weather so stuff doesn't rust out, it does, you know, the only thing is occasional meteorites will, uh, you know, I mean, meteors will will fly in and produce a little more dust. So stuff right. gets buried in dust, but doggone it, if it had been inhabited, you'd see that evidence on the surface.
1: Yeah, and why I asked you that is because, once again, the conspiracy theorists believe that there are structures on the moon, on the dark side of the moon, and that... Once again, this information is being suppressed by the governments of the world. Yeah. Seth, you and I have to take our final break. Please stand by. Dr. Seth Shostak is our guest, Exxon Nation, www.seti.org, that's S-E-T-I dot O-R-G, and www.sethshostak.com. We'll be back as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, right after these breaks. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back, everyone. Don't forget to find out about the programming we have available for you, 27... No, wait a minute, 24-7-365. Go to xzbn.net, And uh, November 15th, we launch our News Talk, Music, Entertainment, Information channel, Xzbn channel 365. Alrighty, Seth Shostak is our guest. SETI.org and SethShostak.com. Uh, Seth, is there any problem that you can see as, as a person who is listening in for radio signals that are coming this way, that the signals that we in the broadcast industry are sending out into space could actually cause some problems.
2: Well, uh, yeah, there are people who worry about that. Not so much about broadcasting, but there have been initiatives, there have been ideas to deliberately broadcast strong signals toward the stars to, you know, elicit a response. Hey, you know, we're the Earthlings and we'd love to get in touch, so get back to us, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, there are people who have offered the opinion that this is bad because you don't know what's out there. And it could be that 98% of all aliens are peace-loving and friendly. But what if you hit the Kim Jong-un of the galaxy? Boy. Right? Oh, boy. Right? <laughs> and, and, you know, they, they decide to, oh, man, there's some, somebody on that planet, that blue planet over there. So let's just launch our uh, interstellar battle wagons and wipe them out before they cause any trouble. Now, uh, you know, this is kind of a—it strikes me as kind of a paranoid approach to, to life. But on the other hand, you wouldn't want your gravestone to read responsible for the obliteration of Earth. That would be a bummer. So uh, they say don't broadcast these things into space. Now— Yeah, but can I ask that, you a question? If, sure.
1: If, if you caused the obliteration of Earth, who would read the tombstone?
2: Well, yeah, I wondered about that myself. Okay, just thought I it. Since I said it, but, you know. (laughs) All right, so, but here's here's the deal. Uh, You know, you can't rule out the possibility that there are nasty aliens out there. I mean, you know, I don't know. uh, Captain Kirk found them all the time. But what you can say is, look, if they can threaten you, if they have the technical capability to come to Earth and, you know, wipe you out or whatever they're going to do, then they're way ahead of us at least by I don't know what at least thousands of years so they have much bigger antennas than we do that's a very reasonable assumption and that means they can pick up uh, the uh, you know the radars from the airports okay so you know we've been broadcasting since the second world war signals to the aliens we're not going to turn off the radars no. at the airports or any other place so it's kind of nutty to worry mm-hmm. about this now. I mean, we've we've already told them we're here, so uh, I would say, you know, load up your freezer with with pizzas and be prepared for the invasion.
1: Uh, do you still do your monthly skeptic check show? We do, oh. we do. Tell, yes. our, tell our listeners about it and how they can listen to it, because I, I think well, it, I think it's a great show.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's just one episode every four episodes, if you will, once a month of uh, Big Picture Science, which is our one-hour weekly science radio show. And it's not always about life and space. I have to tell people that soon because they think it, it would be, but it's mm-hmm. not. Um, but once a month, we, we pick up on something that is you know, popular in what we call pseudoscience. You might not think it's pseudoscience, but that's why we make the show. And, you know, whether it's Bigfoot or whether it's UFOs, those are obvious subjects. But mm-hmm. there are many others, like, you know, do vaccines cause autism and that sort of stuff. When So we look at it, we say, okay, well, let's, let's check out the evidence and what do the skeptics say and what do the believers say? And so, yeah, we still definitely do those shows. And they generate a lot of comment. Not, you know, not all of it is polite, but most of it is... <laughs> So, so, what is the skeptic check uh, opinion
1: uh, of Bigfoot?
2: Well, here's the thing, Bigfoot, uh, Bigfoot, <laughs> oh, Bigfoot. That's, that's some sort of athletic competition. It's either that uh, or it's
1: something to do with a girl on on Blur and Young.
2: It well, yeah. yes, it may, <laughs> uh, but. Now, Bigfoot. Look, if Bigfoot really exists, it's not that you can say a priori you, you can't have a Bigfoot. Well, of course you could have a Bigfoot, but if you have a Bigfoot, you can't just have one of them, or five of them, or ten of them, yeah. or a hundred of them. You kind of need a minimum breeding density, otherwise they die out, right? You know, they, 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 a couple of them decide it's too expensive to send their kids to college. They don't have any kids, right? And then suddenly they're no more Bigfoot. So you need you need. At least thousands, I would think, at least thousands. Now, if thousands of these hirsute guys are tramping around the woods of the Pacific Northwest, you know, trying to escape into Canada, if that's the case, then how come we don't see anything? How come we don't find their bones or their scat or, you know, anything else? You know, when there are roads crisscrossing the whole area, you you never hit one with a truck. Uh, It just seems to me that the evidence is kind of poor. Have you on your show,
1: Skeptic Check, ever done anything into um, communication from the dead?
2: Well, it turns out you can talk to the dead. The problem is they don't talk back. Um, But, no, we haven't—well, I guess we did uh, discuss Harry Houdini. Yeah. Right, because he he was looking into that possibility medium, and uh, he he became a bit of a debunker later in life. But he had told his wife, he said, I don't know— if the dead can talk to the living or not, he said, but I'll tell you this, pay attention every Halloween because if I can talk to you, I will try. And so she did listen, whatever listen means, mm-hmm. every Halloween, but lamentably her husband didn't get in touch. Is there any
1: connection between what you at SETI are doing and what those people who, who um, follow trans instrumental? Communication where they actually listen to white noise and look at white noise in order to try to see if there's any communication from the other side using electronics.
2: Yeah, it, it's very bad of them to use white noise because that kind of obscures the information. <laughs> if you want to be heard, you don't want to yeah. stand next to Niagara Falls, right? But, uh, no, actually, we we don't do any of that. But we have lots of white noise in our receivers, mm-hmm. not deliberately. We try and engineer as much of it out of the receivers right. as we can. Mm-hmm. But inevitably, you know, it's just physics. Inevitably, any receiver has a little bit of noise in it. And, of course, we're looking for very, very weak signals. So we, we try and uh, minimize the white noise. So what's next for Seth Shostak? Would, uh, next for me? Mm-hmm. Well, it's dinner time, so oh, maybe right, I'll go right, home. Right, I'll but I, I think that, no... What we're doing, we have a lot of projects here for SETI that are actually kind of exciting. We're looking for things other than just radio waves. We've got a project to build a device that can sort of scan the night sky looking for laser flashes because, you know, maybe E.T.'s not sending us radio because yeah. he doesn't know we're here. And they just sending an occasional la- uh, laser ping every couple of weeks or something that we would never have seen. And that might be just an invitation to flash something back so that they actually do set up that radio link, whatever. But... There's that, and then just the inevitable improvements in the technology as computers get faster and cheaper, so I remain optimistic
1: that now that's interesting the the because couldn't they also be encoding the laser with information that they want to share with us?
2: yeah, you can it's very yeah. easy to put information on the laser. anybody who yeah. has a fiber optic right you know in, into their home knows that that's the case. you can get a lot of information down the a laser beam. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even aside from just information that they're sending us, you know, their poetry or rock and roll or whatever they're sending us, the fact that they might just have a list of millions of planets, say, that they know have oxygen in their atmosphere. So, you know, the Klingons know that, okay, here are a couple of million planets that we know have some sort of biology. We don't know if any of them have intelligent biology. But just as a high school science fair project, we'll set up this laser that'll ping each one of these million planets, I don't know, once every two weeks, it really doesn't matter, just for a millisecond or a hundredth of a second, and just see if anybody ever gets back to us, you know, just for the heck of it. And that's the kind of thing that they might be doing that we would not have noticed. So, that's why we're trying to build this equipment.
1: Finally, Seth, um, if there was uh, a giant-sized asteroid or other space um, structure coming for us, right? how long would it how far in advance would astronomers be able to to detect it and what would happen if, with the, if that that asteroid or that big rock was heading right for planet earth
2: well uh, of course uh, <laughs> the answer is it would not be good say goodbye um, <laughs> But, you know, a lot of these asteroids we find after they pass the Earth already, okay, so uh, that's a partial answer to your question. But, of course, the danger is well appreciated, and there have been, you know, there are specialized telescopes that look for these things, and Mm -hmm. we now have mapped well over 90% of the really big ones, the kinds that, you know, wiped out the dinosaurs, for example, The, the things that are bigger than, say, a kilometer in size. We know most of those, and none of them has our name on it at the moment, so for the next 20 or 30 years You don't have to worry about that But, you know, there was an asteroid found Just this last week uh, That was passing, you know uh, Not terribly far away It was 40 meters, say 120 feet in size And, uh, you know, we, we didn't know about it I mean, It's just another rock, okay And it's it's not a threat to us now It might be a threat to us in 40 years Or something like that But you could say, what if a, a rock that size Were to, you know, hit downtown New York Or downtown uh, Toronto or something like that, and it would, it would wreak havoc and destruction. That's bigger than the one that hit in Chelyabinsk, Russia, which mm-hmm. didn't kill anybody, but if it had come straight down, rather than sort of at a glancing angle, it undoubtedly would have killed people. So you'd make a very big crater. It would ruin everybody's whole day. If you have a rock that's the size of uh, you know a, a mile across or something like that, that, that's very, very serious. So you do want to find these things, and you want to find them in advance, and if they're big enough, you want to deploy some rockets, go out there and change their trajectory. Sounds like a movie I once watched. Yes, it might be. Seth, I want to
1: thank you ever so much, my friend, for coming on the show. It's been way too long. Uh, congratulations on all your successes, and, and thank you for doing the wonderful work that you and SETI do. Uh, so until the next time we meet, Seth, take care of yourself, my friend.
2: Thank you very much, Rob.
1: Exonation. Seth, Dr. Seth Shostak has been my guest this hour, www.seti.org and www.sethshostack.com. A great man. I've had the pleasure of uh, having Seth on the show many times over the years. And not only does he work with SETI, but he also is involved with uh, the educational aspect of, of teaching children and adults all about astronomy. Great guy. I'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the X Zone from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada and on the iHeart Radio system.